But to kind of kick you into the thinking of it, um, in about the 1980s, there was a culling operation in Kruger National Park. Basically, Kruger has um, almost double the number of elephants that the land can sustain. And they thought about ways to deal with it. And at the time, culling was the only solution they had. So, so what they did is they, they went and culled all the adults but kept the, the, the baby elephants. And they took those babies to Peelensburg National Park. Um, and they, they basically put a ton of sort of one, two, three-year-olds into Peelensburg. The babies quite quickly identified with a rhino and they came alongside almost looking for parents. And they connected with the rhino and they grew up next to the rhino. A few years down the line, these young elephants had grown. They were now sort of getting into teenagerhood. And uh, they hit that moment at about 18 that the teenagers do, where, where hormones kind of get a little bit higher than IQ and, and stuff starts to go wrong. And uh, what happened is they, they entered into what's called must. Now, most elephants enter into must at 28, but these ones entered into must sort of 16, 17, 18. And because they didn't really know what was going on, they tried to mate with the rhino. And whenever you try to mate with the wrong species, it kind of goes south. And so the rhino weren't so keen. And they got so angry, the bulls got so angry in must that they started killing rhino. In fact, from the 80s to about 93, 63 rhino were killed and a couple of hippo. It was an absolute disaster. The elephant went utterly rogue. In fact, one of the elephant, Tom Tum, you can see a picture of him, he started recruiting other elephant outside the national park to come in and, and be part of his gang. He was, he was like a leader, and he took them in a rogue direction. And so they brought a professional hunter in who tried to shoot Tom Tum, but Tom Tum somehow managed to get around him and killed the professional hunter, and that escalated the elephant charge tourists, and then another professional hunter came in, he shot another one of the elephants, the male elephants, and that, that just went south, it was a disaster. And so they, by about the 90s, they started going, how are we gonna solve this problem? By that stage, they had choppers that could lift and move a five-ton elephant, and they found this elephant, his name is Amarula. He's a huge five-ton elephant. Those elephant in the park were about three and a half to four ton. They were in their 20s by that stage. And uh, they brought Amarula in. He was a father elephant. He was a big bull, one of the biggest bulls in Kruger. They dropped him off. And within a very short amount of time, one of the bulls in Mus decided to challenge Amarula. Five tons against three and a half tons. It went very badly for the bull and must. Amarula actually lifted him off the ground, smashed him and threw him. Um, and there was never another fight again. What was incredible about that was that within 24 hours, there was not a single other rogue situation. And there wasn't a single rogue attack. Those elephants came into the divine order that God had made them for. Now, I tell you this story because when fathers come into environments, the rogue in us gets sorted out. In fact, 
The problem in this world is a fatherless generation. It's a fascinating time in history because it's the first time in history that fatherlessness has occurred not as a result of war, but as a result of abscondment. In the West, the, the likelihood of growing up in a single home is incredibly high, and it's a result not of fathers dying, but of fathers just leaving. The situation in South Africa is is a disaster, and a lot of that has got to do with apartheid. And, and what happened in apartheid was that we moved fathers out of the family nucleus and put them on mines and then broke down the father-son, father-daughter relationships, broke down the family nucleus, and the result is stories like Uyanene and the Am I Next campaign. And we can look over South Africa at the moment and we can see mankind going rogue. It's not just South Africa. When I was in Bali recently, um, I, I was walking down a street in Bali with one of my mates, and he was approached and offered um, Viagra, cocaine, ladies, ladyboys, all within a space of about 15 steps. He got offered a whole bunch of stuff by a whole bunch of people. And I thought to myself, it's gone rogue. The thing about being a Christian is that we know the Father, and so we can understand what it means to be a father, and we can come in and father this world. And what this series is about is helping us to understand the Father, get his heart into our hearts so that we can better show an orphaned world what the Father looks like. Now today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about how Jesus set us up for that. And uh, I'm going to look at, at Matthew chapter 3. But to give you a big picture of Scripture, when we start the Bible, we, we see God the Father calling Adam. You, you can read about this in Luke 3. He says, Adam, my son. Adam, the son of God. And then what happens is Adam gets deceived. It says the God of this world has blinded the eyes of those who would believe. So, so Adam gets deceived by Satan and he is led away from the Father. There is a war against the Father. Adam, uh, Satan pulls him away. And then what happens is God raises up Israel and God says of Israel, he, he speaks to Pharaoh and he says, let my firstborn son go. And all the way through the prophets and through the judges and through the kings, we see generation after generation after generation being led away from the Father. They keep being led away by the God of this world who has an utter war on us because he knows that if he can move us away from the Father, we will go rogue and we will cause havoc. And so God sends his one and only son. And Jesus who is his ultimate son, comes sinless to achieve four things. The first thing that Jesus comes to achieve is to reveal the Father. In all of his teachings, as you start to read the scriptures, you start to hear him say, um, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He, he says, if you fathers, though you evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more my Father in him. All of his teachings are to give us an understanding of who the Father is. So he's here to reveal the Father. He's here to reveal to us how to live as sons dependent on the Father. 
So his relationship is, I only do what I see the Father doing, and there's this dependence on the Father. Then he comes to break the works of the devil or to destroy the works of the devil, the Scripture says, which means to break off us the blinding of our eyes so that we can come back to the Father. And lastly, he achieves this by making a way for us to come to the Father by going and dying for our sin on the cross. But before he can do all of those things, he has to overcome the thing that we struggle with. Because of our insatiable desires, we get pulled in and lured in by Satan and and we get blinded. He has to beat that. And so as you open the scriptures to Matthew 3.16, I'm going to read through to chapter 4, verse 11, and it says this. After his baptism, as Jesus came out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and became very hungry. And during that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, if you are the son of God, jump off for the scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot in a stone. And Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of this world and all their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him, for the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away and angels came and took care of him. It's an incredible text and it starts off with the father's voice over the son, and this is the differentiating factor in Jesus' life. The father says, this is my son. He bestows identity. Whom I love, he, disp- he bestows the acceptance of God over his life. With whom I'm well pleased, he gives him approval. Identity, acceptance, approval. Those three words, those three aspects absolutely anchor Jesus' soul. They define him, they shape him, and they enable him to overcome the enemy. Now, let me tell you how this kind of works out. When I was uh, actually on my way up to preach this message in Kloof, uh, my daughter said to me, Dad, what does it mean to be a stepbrother or a stepsister? She'd obviously heard this from one of the people in her class and the kids in her class. And, and so she asked this question, not knowing what I'm about to preach on. And so I said to her, I said, my babe, when dad was born, his dad didn't want him. And so my dad left and went back to his other family. And then when I got to 10, my stepdad stepped in, because that's what stepfathers do. They step in to play a role. My stepfather, Gary, came in and he became my dad. 
And she asked lots of questions that caused tears to rise in my eyes. She asked why he would, he would leave me. And, and she started saying, Dad, I, if I had a choice, I would have chosen you over the other family. And, and we had this beautiful conversation that made it hard to preach. But then I started telling her about Gary. And you know, when you've grown up as someone who is the son of no one, and you go to school, everybody's talking about what they did with their dad on the weekend, and you don't have a story. You don't fit in. You, you know that there's no one really there to provide for you. There's no one really there to protect you. There's, there's no one there who's going to teach you how to do stuff. And so you hustle. You're on your own. You've got to make it happen yourself. And you, you're aware of this as a child, and it kind of... It weighs on you. you. You feel a responsibility to look after your mom, a responsibility that you actually can't achieve, but you feel that and you feel orphan-hearted. But when Gary came along, everything began to change. And I'd grown up in a... My mom was a teacher, so her salary wasn't phenomenal. I ate too much mince for any human on this planet. I, we ate mints, I think, six nights a week. It was, uh, we had a lot of mints. But we grew up fairly poor. And when I went to Gary's house, when we stepped into his home, I suddenly had access not just to different food, but to fishing rods and to rifles and to sporting equipment. And, and, and I had opportunities I'd never had. And, and I had a dad who would teach me how to do stuff. And I remember, and if you've heard the story before, forgive me, but I remember when he gave me a cricket bat. It was the first like big gift that I've ever been given. And, and he said, you love cricket, so here's a cricket bat. So I took the cricket bat and I started knocking it in as you do. I knocked that cricket bat in more than any cricket bat to be knocked in and then I put linseed oil over it, so much linseed oil that I soaked that poor bat and then I slept with it in my bed because that's what you do when you've never had a cricket bat before and you ruined your mom's sheets and, and so that cricket bat lived with me. And then I went to school and uh, you must understand, I'm kind of skinny now but back then I was, I was stick thin and uh, and I've got a tan now, but back then I was fairly anemic and I was shy and I didn't have confidence. And, and whenever people would have that conversation around my dad or beat up your dad, I didn't have a rebuttal for that. But, but now Gary was my stepdad and he was a professional hunter and your dad might be able to beat him up, but he'll shoot his ass from 200 meters and he will destroy him. And uh, I suddenly had a confidence in me. I remember going to school and on the way back, a grade six, I was in grade four, this shy, skinny little kid. This grade six says to me, pass your bat. And so I was so proud of the bat. I said, here you go. And, and I gave it to him. And he started banging it against the corner of the steel step. And I said, stop, stop. And he didn't stop. He kept banging it. And normally what would have happened is Ross, the son of no one, would have backed out and not known what to do and, and maybe cried out to someone to help. But now I was Ross, the son of Gary. And so the skinny little runt got up and I walked over to him and I punched him in the nose and all of heaven rejoiced and angels were singing and God came down in that moment. Not so much, but it felt like that for me because suddenly I was operating as the son of someone. 
And when you're a son, every single thing in your life changes. When you're an orphan, everything in your life is about hustling and making it happen and, and forming gangs and cliques. And, and it's about how do I protect myself and these multiple different defense mechanisms that you, you invest your life into so that you can protect your heart. And, and everything's about defense. But when you're a son, you get to go home to a father. And you're not judged by how you act or how you behave. You're just the son. You know, when, when I have a tough day today, I go home to Gary's house. Because at Gary's house, I'm not judged on how I'm doing as a leader or an elder or a boss. I'm just Gary's son. I am loved, approved of, accepted, I'm the son. I have an identity there that just makes me relax and I can pour out my heart and I'm not criticized for the last 40 things I did. I'm just, I just get to be a son. When you're orphan-hearted, you never just get to be a son. You don't have a home to go to. You're always trying to prove something, trying to, trying to make a way, trying to establish enough wealth so that you're protected, so that you're comfortable, so that you're provided for. Everything is a hustle. Jesus resists temptation out of being a son. So Satan comes to him and he says, it's been 40 days, 40 nights, Jesus is really hungry. He says, if you're the son of God, turn this bread into these stones into bread. And we know that Jesus could because he turned five loaves into feed 5,000. So he can turn the stones into bread. But his response is, man does not live on bread alone. And, and here's what he's doing. Satan is tempting him in a need that he has. And Satan's saying, prove yourself and do this, satisfy yourself. Now, I want to talk about temptation for a moment because temptation is mostly about you satisfying yourself instead of waiting on the Father to satisfy you. See, temptation only lasts X amount of time. And on the other side of temptation is always the satisfaction that comes from God. But in the temptation, it feels like God's never going to come through. So we take matters into our own hands like orphans and we go, I will turn my stones into bread to satisfy myself. And they almost never satisfy us. Jesus, he doesn't do that. He waits. And God sends angels to minister to him. And Satan takes him to a high temple and he says to him, if you're the son of God, jump off. Because scripture says that the angels will protect you from even hurting your foot in a stone. And Jesus' response is interesting. But before we get there, you need to know this about Satan's temptations, the weapons he uses against you, because he only has three. And people say that he only has three because he's not creative. I want to tell you, he only has three because he only needs three because we're so desperate for these things in our souls to be satisfied. So his three weapons are the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And so let me explain them to you for a moment. He comes to Eve and he says to Eve, look at that apple. 
and it's a Woolies apple, it's not a Checkers apple. And so she looks at the apple and her eyes look at it and go, it is beautiful. That's the lust of the eyes. And, and her salivary glands start flowing and she looks at it and she thinks to herself, that looks delicious and that's the lust of the flesh. And then Satan says to her, if you eat that apple, you will be like God's or you'll be like God. You will know, and the word know actually means to be able to handle, you'll be able to handle both good and evil. And, and Eve goes, and gives herself to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Pride is when you believe that who you are and what you are isn't enough, and you need to do something or be something or eat something or get something so that you will be acceptable or you'll be good enough or you'll be approved of. And so she takes. Satan uses the lust of the flesh on Jesus' stomach says, eat this, turn the stones into bread. He uses the lust of the eyes at the end. He uses, right now he's using the pride of life. What he's saying to Jesus, if you're the son of God, prove it. Jump. Because this is what the scriptures say. You ever find yourself in a, in a space where you need to prove yourself? You know, I, I think that the millennials are speaking out what's in everyone's heart this absolute desire to feel wanted and needed and brilliant and special and approved of. And so, so what happens is we strive to have that house, get that thing. We, we strive to live a life of sport and recreation and family that looks so good because we want to feel approved of. And we get caught in the trap of pride. Out of our insecurity, we get, we get caught into pride. I remember when I was, um, I was about 16, I, w- I went to some cricket trials. And I should have walked into the team because I had an average of about 95. I just basically had to make a 50, and I was sorted. And uh, there were three matches, and the first match had been raining. And a guy, the guy bowling bowled probably the slowest bouncer that has ever been bowled to a human. It, it, it bounced like a tennis ball, and, and it came up, and I swung probably about half a minute early. I, I swung so early that I think if I'd had my wits about me, I could have turned around and, and hit it the other way. It was, it was so slow. And the ball hit me in the head very slowly. It still hurt. And it so shook my confidence that I, I, I just couldn't bat. And uh, I, uh, first game I made 23 and then I made 30 and then I was out for like 10. And, and I sat on the bed the one night and I was weeping because I knew I couldn't make this team. My stepfather, my dad came in and he put his arm around me and the Holy Spirit reminded me of this because at the time it didn't mean anything because what I wanted was, was to make the team. But, but the Holy Spirit reminded me after I got saved about how he was working through my father to touch my heart and, and my father sat down next to me and he said, I am so proud of you whether you make this team or not. I'm proud of you for who you've become. I'm proud of you for how hard you work. I'm proud of you because you're my boy and I love you. And I couldn't hear that. But when the Holy Spirit revealed it to me, I began to weep. Because this is the Father heart of God, that I am proud of you regardless. You know, in my home, I'm a single child. Most of you can probably pick that up. I, I'm a single child, and, and my folks, 
they were besotted with me. I, I mean, it's embarrassing. When, when you go to my house, you, you just see pictures of me all over the walls, pictures of me with, with problem animals that I've hunted and my first hundred in cricket and the rugby teams I made and the prefects and the, all everywhere. They're just pictures of me. It's disgusting. But over the mantelpiece where everybody goes, there's one photo and it is of me with my dad and he is wearing court broker and only court broker and he's tanned and I'm standing next to him and I look like I've just gone to the North Pole and he's holding a fishing rod and he's got a fish on the end of it and, and I'm holding a fishing rod and I've got nothing on the end of it and I'm looking white and anemic and he's looking brown and he's, he's looking so good. So I said to him, Dad, I get that photo and that photo and that photo, but what's up with this photo? And he said, oh, that was my favorite. He says, you were really sick. Doctor said to us, we have to keep you in bed. But I saw you day after day in bed, and, and I couldn't take it anymore, so I broke you out. And I took you fishing. It was one of the best days of my life because I just got to be with you. From start to finish, it was just you and me. And you caught no fish. I caught all the fish, but it was just being with you. And that heavenly father would whisper over your life, I just want to be with you. Jesus says to Satan, not a chance. I am not going to put the Lord my God to the test. I am not going to prove myself to you because the approval that I need has already been given. And it is so embedded and meshed in my heart that it defines every aspect of my life. And so Satan comes to him a third time, and now he comes after the eyes. He shows him all the kingdoms of this world, the kingdoms that were rightfully Jesus that had been stolen because men had given them up. He shows them all the kingdoms of the world, and he says, I will give them all back to you if you'll worship me. And Jesus knows at this moment he has one of two ways. He's either worships Satan and gets them back, or he suffers on a cross and gets them back. But to be Jesus, to be defined by the voice of the Father and the approval of the Father and the love of the Father means that it is very, very hard to turn away from the Father. See, this is the thing about overcoming, is that when your life is about the Father because you are defined and shaped by the Father, then you only want to please the Father because his approval matters more than the voices out there. And so Jesus says to Satan, get out of here, Satan, for you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And most people, when they speak about this, they talk about Jesus using the word as a, as a weapon, which is so important. But, but what you've got to get here is that it's driven out of a relationship. Everything Jesus overcomes Satan with is driven out of a relationship with the Father. And he's going, this is how world, this is how you live connected to the Father. To be a son of God means that you will suffer in this world because Jesus suffered in this world and you will suffer to please the Father. This is what it means to be a Christian. It is part of our family inheritance. Now I tell you all of these stories because I'm trying to get the heart of the Father across to you, but I wanna tell you one more aspect of it as I wrap up. I recently went to Bali. It was incredible. I uh, 
I surfed and kite surfed for like seven and a half hours a day. It's just the best. In fact, when we went there, um, we got upgraded to business class. And, and one of the guys I was with said, no, 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 we, he's not a pastor. He said, no, 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 I, we didn't pay for business class. I said, shut up and receive, brother. And, and we, we got business class. And when I got in there, I could tell that I didn't belong in business class because the lady sitting next to me looked at me like I didn't belong in business class. And I think it was because I was using that chair to go up, down, all around. I was playing around there. And, and just to confess my son, there, there were a lot of drinks offered on the business class menu, and I had a lot of them. It was delightful. But everything was so good on this trip, and, and I was surfing better than I've ever surfed, better waves than I've ever surfed, and I was cutting. It was incredible. And I was satisfying so much of myself. I was satisfying my mind. I read a book when the one day I just couldn't surf anymore. After four hours, I was done. And so I read a book the whole day, and my mind was satisfied, and I was with good friends, and my heart was satisfied, and, and I, was, I was doing the sport, and my body was satisfied. But I realized one night when I was sitting around the table and an Aussie guy came over. And this Aussie guy just, he had TMI, just too much information. He, he just started sharing about his wife who was leaving him and his cocaine addiction and, and just one thing after the next. And it was just like, he just aired his dirty luggage, uh, baggage all over the table. And, and I was kind of looking at my mates who were feeling a little uncomfortable. I'm kind of used to this as a pastor. But Dave Gould, my mate, was sitting right next to him. And when he had finished airing all his stuff, Dave, my mate, said to him, you can still get your marriage back. And the guy looked at him, kind of like he was a little bit weird. And Dave said, if you get Jesus into your life, you can get your marriage back. And then he started speaking to him. And as Dave was speaking, I could feel my soul starting to jump up and down. You see, you can satisfy your mind and you can satisfy your body and you can, you can satisfy even your friendship relationships around, but only the Father can satisfy the soul. In that moment, as I was hearing the gospel being preached, I could feel the pleasure of God right over that moment and I knew my soul was being satisfied. Your soul only gets satisfied with the Father. Then on the last day, we... We drove down to a part of the reef that um, we'd never been to. And most of the reef in, on that island was, was dead. But when we got here, there was coral and there was, there was just beautiful vegetation, sea vegetation. There was, there was stuff that was so luminous and so blue and green that my spirit, it literally erupted out of me as I looked with my two friends around. And I, I just began to praise God. And as I began to praise God, because God inhabits the praise of the saints, I could feel his presence on me and my soul was satisfied. See, this is the thing. That you can satisfy yourself with your relationships and with your sport and with your achievements and you can satisfy your mind and your often you can even satisfy your emotions but you cannot satisfy your soul without the father the father is the one who fills it and Jesus is trying to bring us back to the father and maybe today before you take another step out of there maybe you just want to say father come into my soul I don't want to satisfy myself anymore. I want you to satisfy me, and I will wait on you. Morning, North Coast. Yes, friends, I think for us, um, this is a special time. I think there may be people um, sitting here today that haven't yet made that choice in their lives to just really say, 
Jesus, it's all of me. And so if that's you, I just really encourage you to come to the front afterwards and just put yourself fully in his hands because this, this father heart, this opportunity to be loved in a way that you've never been loved before is real. And the father has that for us. And there may, there may be some of you that haven't understood that you are adequate, that you have been made a new creation adequately, perfectly. And that despite that everything that you've done to earn the approval of those around you, earn the approval of those at work, earn the approval from your spouse, your kids, your father, that the Father in heaven gives that approval to you before you've earned anything. So just as you guys let that sink in, I encourage you also to come to the front afterwards if you just want to spend some time understanding that before anything you've done, that identity, that acceptance, that approval is given as a free gift. So those things that have defined you in your life growing up, the words that have been said to you from friends or family or whatever it may be, those things are lies in comparison to the truth that the Father has spoken over you, which are that he loves you, that he's proud of you. So I encourage you, if you want to spend some time just praying that through with people, please come to the front. We'd love to do that with you. And Father, this morning, as we get to experience what it is to be a son and a daughter, Lord, I pray for just a revelation of your goodness. Lord, I pray that lives are turned around, turned on their head. As we accept the free gift as opposed to having to prove it. Father, I also pray that as a country of many fatherless people, Lord, I pray that our country and our nation is turned around by Christians stepping up and sharing the good message of the gospel that Jesus is real and that the Father loves and that there's identity and approval in that space of understanding the Father heart of God. So just continuing in a time of prayer. Um just so mindful of those words um, spoken over each of us who've chosen Jesus. These words spoken, um, this is my son or daughter whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. And if there's anybody now who hears those words and struggles to believe that they could be true, I just want you to take a moment to be mindful of what it is that's stopping you from believing that. Because that is the devil's tactic, is to make us believe that the Father is not good or that the Father couldn't love us. And so if there's anything that comes to mind, I really want to ask and encourage you to come forward for some prayer to just process that. But the truth is, without us earning a thing, if we've accepted a relationship with Jesus, that the Father loves us, He's pleased with us. And that the greatest satisfaction of our soul is to have time with our Father and to be a part of bringing His other sons and daughters into a place of being with their father. And there's nothing on this earth that will satisfy our souls like that. So Father, we just thank you for this series. We thank you for this message. And we pray that over the next few weeks, we would know with absolute certainty that we are your sons and daughters, that you love us, that you are pleased with us, and that we get to be a part of this incredible adventure of bringing your other children into a place of being with their father. Thank you, King. Amen. Awesome.